Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. The saints we commemorate this evening uh, sort of turn our attention away from the usual eastern part of the Mediterranean and direct us back towards the west. Uh, Leo was uh, the uh, Pope of Rome, and it's right to say that. That's a kind of nickname for popes uh, even back then. Uh, in fact, the Archbishop of uh, Alexandria is also called Pope. Uh, but Leo, this is in the middle 400s. Um, Rome was not famous as a great theological center. Uh, it, it was not a place that produced great theologians. It produced lawyers. Uh, and, uh, you know, people who were kind of useful and trained in the imperial <coughs> service. Uh, Leo, uh, when controversies arose, uh, uh, around the heresy of Nestorianism, but Nestorius was trying to sort of divide Jesus into this is Jesus the Christ, this is Jesus the man, and kind of speak about it in an incorrect way, he wrote a letter uh, to the Patriarch of Constantinople, Flavian, and in this letter uh, was shared, he urged a council, and this letter was shared with the council that was called uh, at uh, Chalcedon, near Constantinople, uh, 600 and some odd bishops gathered there, and his letter uh, was read in the council. It's called the Tome of Leo, which is just fancy for Leo's letter. And uh, they read it, and they liked it, they you know, approved of it, and became part of that council. And it was in that letter that he used uh, the formula of uh, two natures, one person. Uh, he didn't go into a great deal of explanation about that. He was not a Greek. He would leave the Greeks another 100, 200 years to argue about what it meant. Leo, uh, being the Roman that he was, uh, could kind of sum it up, give you a formula you could hang your hat on, a Latin formula, formula you could hang your hat on, uh, and it sort of was the rallying cry around which uh, Chalcedonian Christianity, of which uh, we're the major great example, uh, Chalcedonian Christianity, uh, around, around that slogan, if you will, of, of two natures, one person. Uh, he did a number of other things as well. I think a couple of things that are really striking. Uh, one of them, he met face to face with Attila the Hun, who was on his way to sack the city of Rome, and he talked him out of it. So apparently, he was a good talker. Uh, there's a lot of speculation among historians that maybe until I had a good reason for not sacking Rome, but uh, the, those who wrote about it at the time gave Leo all of the credit. That's, that's impressive. Uh, he also managed, in another case, to somebody, a, a group of vandals, uh, attacked the city, and he managed to get them to agree to leave the people alone, take the stuff, leave the people, which was not the usual method of operation at the time, uh, but he saved the people of Rome. So Leo uh, was a great shepherd to his flock, uh, not, able, uh, not only able to defend the faith in a succinct and clear manner, uh, but also uh, able as a good pastor uh, to prevent wolves with swords from killing them. It's impressive. So now I'm going to swing us to the far west of that time, uh, into uh, the British Isles. This other saint uh, of this day, uh, Saint Coleman of Lindisfarne. Uh, he was mm, 
a successor once removed from St. Aidan of Lindisfarne, uh, who had founded uh, this uh, monastery of Lindisfarne, just sort of just off the coast of Northumbria, up near Yorkshire area, up off the coast of Northumbria. Uh, Aidan had come from the monastery of Iona on the western coast, just off Scotland, uh, southern Scotland, um, and had come there at the invitation of the king. Uh, the king had asked for some, the Northumbrians had been Christians and then lost their faith under some pagan stuff, and he wanted, the king uh, wanted them brought back to the faith, and so he sent to get a, a bishop preacher from Iona, and the first guy who came was me. I mean, he really, you know, it was a fiery brimstone kind of preacher. And uh, the Northumbrians didn't take to him very much at all. And so he left frustrated and went back to Iona and said that the Northumbrians are hard-hearted. Oh, yeah. Blame the people. But anyway, and instead they sent Aidan of Lindisfarne, who went, and Aidan was just the opposite. Gentle, go around on foot, wouldn't ride his horse, kept giving horses away, he would go on foot, said he would just meet people, chat with them about what they were doing, talk with them, and very slowly, over time, uh, would introduce the faith. And he said he introduced the easy stuff. He didn't try to lay too much on them. Uh, and, by, and every time someone would give treasures to the monastery, he would immediately distribute it to the poor. He didn't do anything to try to you know, fatten the monastery up. Uh, and he, he lived that simple life. Well, that was the example of, of the bishop who followed him. And then once removed, uh, St. Coleman of Lindisfarne kept this very simple life uh, with the pure and holy tradition that they had brought from Iona, that had come over from Ireland, which was Christian before uh, that whole part of England and all was. So anyway, these Irish monks, Coleman, Irishman, Coleman, uh, attended a council, this is in the 600s or so, middle 600s, council at Whitby, uh, which is on the Northumbrian coast, uh, that the King Oswe had wanted called, because problems had come up, they had these uh, bishops and stuff down in, England, in the lower parts of England, or what today we call England, uh, whose kind of rip of authority had come from Rome. And they kept Roman customs. And the Irish, this is very strange about the Irish church. Um, a big deal was they kept Easter at a different time than the Roman Christians, which meant the rest of the empire at the time kept it the same as Rome did. Um, they had the rather antique practice of being quartadecians, which means uh, in English it would be 14ers. Quartadecian uh, means number 14. They, they observed uh, Easter on the 14th day of Nisan, which is a lunar month in the Jewish calendar. They and the last time we had heard of that method was in the early 2nd century uh, in Asia Minor. It was said that John the Apostle liked keeping uh, Pascha on that day. Uh, and we know that Polycarp of Smyrna, who was martyred later in Rome, uh, kept Pascha on that day, except when he got to Rome and found out they were doing it differently. He did what Rome did. But anyway, the Irish, these new guys come in from Rome and they're doing things differently. And they say, well, this is the way we've always done it. You can tell how orthodox they were 
Their answer was, we've never done it that way. Uh, this is new. Where'd you get that idea? And the argument was, well, this is what Peter, the Pope of Rome, head of the church, etc., etc., does. You should do what he does. And eventually that carried the arguments it would be, except for Coleman. Uh, Coleman did not care for that. He wanted to keep the ways he had always kept. Uh, and I think he was just doubtful about this other stuff. So he gave up being, he was a bishop, he renounced being a bishop, took the Irish monks with him and left. They eventually went up to Iona and then to an island, uh, another island off of Ireland. Um, he strikes me as interesting. Here's Leo, this great protector of his people on the one hand, and this great defender of doctrine. And here's Coleman, who's a saint of the church that, from our perspective, you'd almost want to call him a Cisnet. I mean, what's with it, Coleman? You all had a little meeting. You went to the meeting. They made a decision. You know, well, he didn't try to split the church. He just said, I don't want to be a bishop anymore. I'm not going to do this. We're just going to go to our monastery. Well, there's a sense in which this is sort of how the life of the church can be sometimes. Um, Coleman, like Aidan before him, uh, he was sold out to the church and to the gospel, but very much from the heart. Not by the rules exactly, except the ones that he had been taught. Um, and not a theologian, uh, but he practiced what he preached, and he preached what he practiced. And when it became something that a good conscience he couldn't do, he walked away from it and continued in his faithfulness and in his practice. Um, and there's a place for that too. Um, and, uh, you know, and you can say there's a place for that. Why? Because he's a saint. It's the church saying there's a place for that. He did not try to split the church, um, but he did what he had to do uh, by conscience. Um, in time, uh, all of that was settled out uh, and uh, the church uh, grew, strengthened. Uh, these areas were eventually uh, became uh, fully Christian. It took time. English are our stiff-necked people. That first night was right. Uh, we still are. But um, these are great examples. I was talking with someone earlier this week uh, from Eastern Europe, and uh, we were talking about the, the great saints of the British Isles that are generally not known in the eastern part of the world and oftentimes overlooked in the west. Uh, but when you read their lives, you realize these, they're orthodox. They're orthodox like we're orthodox. Uh, and it's deeply moving. I think it's very important uh, in an English-speaking land and in a land with so many people of, of uh, ancestry in the British Isles uh, to know uh, that uh, those isles were evangelized, the church was planted and grew uh, under great uh, giants of the Orthodox faith, whom we rightly claim uh, today. So, anyway, Leo Coleman, remember us and pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you want to announce us out of